Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. Got a great show today. Today's topic is the basics of clearing customs with Christopher Wall. Welcome, Christopher. Hi, Joe. I'm looking forward to this podcast. I know I have bumped up against customs many times, you know, had to fill out the paperwork, got it over to the freight board or to the customs house. But it seems like there's a little bit of black magic in this business that I never understand. So I'm assuming... There will be other people in the listening audience that say, yes, I need to know more about that business. So you are just the guy to take us through that. So before we get started, though, Christopher, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're at. Yeah, so, so my name is Christopher Wall. I'm a co-founder and currently CEO of a company called Zeus Logics, and we are becoming the world's best customs broker. We have taken the approach that customs is a process that has a lot of space for improvement in technology use, in how customers are treated, and in really being customer-centric. And we're sort of, we're moving along with just building out that business. So when did you start that business? We got started in September 2019. So what brought you into that business? It goes back a bit of a ways. I was working for an investment fund in New York in the 2000s, and they sent me down at one point in time to take a look at technology for a small 3PL. And I went in, and and this would be 2007, 2008, took a look at this business, and I was really, really surprised at how little new technology I saw in a business that, depending on how you count it, accounts for anywhere from 10 to 14% of global GDP. I was just, I was really taken aback at how backwards isn't maybe the right word, but just how stuck in time things were. Right. I always defend our space here. And again, I came from the outside to this business. I came from automotive. It's easy to have software within your four walls. And it's even easy to have it when you go, oh, I have my suppliers. Where it gets really challenging is when you have so many different players kind of connecting all the time. That's where, so it's you're not going to invest in something that happens once a month, right? You say, I'm not going to connect to uh, Christopher's company because I only use them sporadically, right? If I use you every day, you get connected. So I can see why, especially the global side, just didn't get connected. But now guys like you are connecting us. Right, so you've hit the nail on the head, and that is that You can do anything in your own four walls, but how do you get other people to play along with you and to be happy to do so? Most of the systems that exist, especially in the large global forwarders and in the large global multinationals, you're right. They're going to, some of these companies have grown through acquisition. Not only, they can't even get their own internal departments all into the same system. Right. They got all those legacy systems. Everybody, they bought 30 companies and they got 30 different systems. Yeah. To give you an idea, this is a number I found just absolutely amazing. My co-founder used to be over at DHL. And when we were talking with, with a group of people who had been at DHL, who'd been at a few of the other global forwarders, they were telling me that there were 2,000 separate legacy systems at DHL alone. Yeah. How would you ever upgrade? I mean, I'm sure they are upgrading. They're an excellent company. I'm sure they're upgrading, but it doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> You're going to have those systems for a long time. It's a monumental task. And it's not like they have just a little bit of business either. They have millions and millions of different bits of information. Yeah, there are, I think, 62,000 employees in, I think, 2018 or 2019. They did close to $20 billion in revenue. That's a big company and a lot of people. If the problem is that it's really, really hard to get people to all move in the same direction, then our question was, all right, if we can see that logistics and supply chains would be better served by having tools that can speak with each other, tools that allow people who don't necessarily know each other to have sort of trust and confidence in what's been going on through their supply chain. And you want people to easily have access to information. If we could build something that generally sort of moved that thesis forward, we'd really be onto something and it would help out a lot of people. Right. We looked for years having discussions about, you know, where could we build something in supply chain? And we eventually came across customs as being a place which was really interesting to us because there's 35 million imports a year done into the U.S. as of 2019. 
pretty much, you know, there's some people who seem to be uh, moving a fair amount of cargo in tunnels in the narcotics industry, but pretty much everybody else is bringing in everything uh, right. to the borders. And it's just, it's a universal process. So right? you saw a big opportunity here. So before yeah. we get into the basics of clearing customs, you've got a really interesting background. Tell us a little bit about that. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you started Zeus. So I was born in California. My father was uh, an American from Kansas. My mother is half French, half Italian. And my father worked in the aviation industry. And when he'd been in the military, first in the Navy and then in the Air Force, he'd picked up a lot of languages. And if it's the 1960s and you're an American who speaks multiple languages and has traveled around the world with the military, the aviation industry saw to it that they sent you off to foreign countries to try and expand markets. So he got sent to, when I was a baby, we got sent to Rome. Then we got sent to Tehran in Iran. Then we got sent to Kuwait, then to Saudi Arabia. And then uh, finally, my mother had some say in where the next place was. So after that, we moved to Paris in France, where, where she's from. And then I came to, I went to high school in, in Europe and then came over to the U.S. to go to college. Nice, nice. I just said this on my last podcast. I said, international man of mystery. That is you and your dad and your mom. Oh, she's not a man, I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> nicely done. That's, a, that's an interesting background. So you came back here for college. So before I even leave that, how many languages do you speak? Uh, let's see. Uh, English, French, Italian, basic German, basic Spanish. Uh, call it like three fluently and a couple of more decently. And if you take me to Japan and leave me there for a couple of weeks, I can probably muddle my way through ordering. I took, I took two semesters of Japanese, but I'd never use it. So I've forgotten it as quickly as I lost my yeah. French. So uh, I speak American. Yeah. <laughs> English, I should say. American English. The world's most useful um, language. <laughs> well, I'm lucky. I'm lucked out yeah. there. So you came to school in the U.S. Where'd you go to school? So I started out in California at Berkeley and then moved on to eventually ended up going to Columbia to finish up. Oh, nice schools too. Jeez, okay. Yeah, it was an interesting thing. While I was in California, I got sidetracked and decided to go into the video game industry and you know, ended up, you were asking sort of about early career before getting into right. supply chain, supply chain tools, and just realized that there were some openings to do some work in the video game industry when games made a transition from being on one of those cartridges, which meant you essentially had, you know, a fairly small game all of a sudden to one that was on a 330 megabyte CD, and all of a sudden the games you know, sort of blew up in, in complexity and size and the amount of work required to develop them. Along the way, a friend called me up sometime in 93, right when essentially the, the World Wide Web was sort of coming into public consciousness and asked if uh, we could make a website. And I said, sure, I can make you a website, but why would you want one? <laughs> what are you going to do with it? <laughs> it's fun technology, but no one's ever going to yeah, use it. It's like, this is like something, we, something we use to like, you know, share files amongst each other so we don't have to use an FTP site. And his dad was an insurance broker in Sausalito in the Bay Area. They wanted one of these websites. And after you build a few of them and all of a sudden people say, oh, you're that guy who's building websites, ended up shutting that business down because it hadn't occurred to me that, you know, it hadn't occurred to 20-year-old me that we could go and raise a ton of money and build this into a big business. I thought this was just going to be like a little niche thing we're doing on the side. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a geek on the side. What do I know about this? And then ended up going to New York to finish off school. And while I was there, again, it's now the late 90s and people are just going absolutely berserk for anybody who's done any kind of internet work. Ended up working with a startup consulting firm there called Scient. We IPO'd that company in, uh, was it 99? And then you know, shortly after I left that, that whole party sort of ended in March 2000. Then went on and for a few years worked on a variety of projects in biotechnology and, and industrial processing. And then ended up in the mid-2000s going to back into New York and, and working for this investment fund where they had me doing principal technology investing. So that's the business of basically going in, looking at companies, trying to decide whether they're an interesting investment, negotiating the investment package, and then keeping an eye to make sure everything goes well at the company. That's where I got in the logistics world. You've got a quite the varied background. Holy moly. Very nice. Very nice. So, and this is another topic, and I don't think it can be on this podcast, but I've always thought, you know, when you were a gamer, <laughs> making these games, I love playing first arcade games that I had the Xbox and all that. And I keep thinking, 
soon <laughs> the first gamers are going to hit retirement <laughs> age. And I, I don't imagine being like 65, you know, say I'm going to spend a lot of time playing games. But at some point, like when you're like 70 and you're like, I'm tired and I'm sore and I'm sick or whatever, I think there's going to be a whole bunch of old dudes playing games, like big interactive games, most likely World War II games. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I can't take that hill physically, but I can sit here in my living room and take that hill with my buddies. You know, to, to some extent, that's the whole sort of promise. If you listen to the technology utopians who are saying this is going to change everything about how we live, that kind of transformation over the next 15, 20, 30 years is probably exactly what's going to happen, right? People being able to already, we basically live mediated through our smartphones. How much yeah. longer before you know we, we have things that are virtual reality type systems, or if you listen to to the likes of of some futurists and actually even to Elon Musk with his neural link, the ability to simply forget about needing a pair of goggles, what he's talking about is essentially just tapping into your visual cortex and what, be there. Dude, <laughs> I'm going to be your dad or George Clooney. I haven't decided. <laughs> <laughs> in the virtual world. But anyway, that is a separate topic. So today's topic is the basics of clearing customs. And so, Chris, what I want to do first is I want you to educate us on the basics of clearing customs. And then I want to talk about some of the problems that are inherent in that space. And I think companies like yours are chipping away at. So first off, take us through the steps that it takes to get us clearing through customs. All right. So I want to mention something you mentioned earlier before that this is customs is like this black hole that there's sort of black magic attached to it. What we're seeing is that that is not true. And we'd like to help. Thank goodness. Yeah. And people in general understand that it's a process that has easily defined points, processes in them. And there's always a little bit of there's always some industry knowledge that needs to be done. But you as a forwarder or as an importer or even as a person who's purchasing goods from an importer should be able to easily understand the process and have confidence that you know what's going on with your goods. There's no reason for it to be obscured and hidden, except that in the past, people haven't seen it to be in their interest or technically expedient to make things clear and transparent. Right. You know, that's one of the reasons I want to talk about this today is, I, you know, I've done custom stuff over, mostly over to Canada or Mexico, but also bringing stuff in. And it's not always easy. And again, I, it's, it's always feels like one of those things where you go, what would I need to give you? And they give you a list and you give them everything. And then they go, nope, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. Give us, you <laughs> instead give us this, give us this. And it's always like just back and forth, back and forth. So hopefully you can make this a little clearer for us. Yeah. So the process is actually fairly simple, right? There's, if you're a new customer from a customs broker, they need to get something called the power of attorney. And this is basically a legal declaration that states that you're allowing somebody else to conduct business on your behalf. So the power of attorney basically gives your customs broker the right to file documents with customs for you. So that's like a limited power of attorney. So you can't go do something to my business bad. You're just managing this aspect. Sure. It's going to be a power of attorney for dealing with customs. Do not expect to see them, you know, changing like the schedule of like when your garbage comes and gets picked up or anything like that. <laughs> right. So once you have this power of attorney in place, then your customs broker should try and learn about your business and find somebody within their organization who knows your business. If you're importing, for example, if you're importing steel into the U.S., you need somebody who understands the quotas. You need somebody who understands what free trade agreements might apply. You need somebody who understands how the various parts are categorized. Are they measured in units of kilos? Are they measured in units of surface? You need somebody who understands that business. Once You've got somebody who understands and knows your business. You know that they can take care of you because if there are small intricacies in there somewhere that need to be adhered to, they know the intricacies already, or they know how to go up and read and find out about what's changed in the past 30 days because the regulations do change frequently. So this first step is like the customer onboarding where you get to know them. Right. It's And vice versa. In the same way that if you went to your tax preparer, they wouldn't just say, all right, I'm going to file your taxes. They'd probably talk to you and ask, you know, what your financial goals were, what your history was and what was important to you and how are you trying to max? Are you trying to maximize savings through a 401k or do you need to maximize cash because you're trying to save up to buy a down payment for a house? All Got these it. kinds of things like, you know, what is important to you as a business? What is important to you and what impacts your specific industry so that when challenges to the smooth flow of the process occur, and they inevitably will, that they're ready to address that. They know you. And also, in our case, we always make sure that there is a dedicated contact person. So when something goes wrong, they know somebody over at the company and the importer knows somebody over at the customs broker. You really want to make sure that you've got some kind of 
personal contact, which is hard if you're anything other than a really, really large account. That's been a challenge for a lot of people. Right. So I would say this, this is just my experience just in general in business, that if somebody doesn't want to take me through kind of a customer onboarding process or an experience of some sort, that I probably should run because <laughs> they don't want to take the time to explain what's going on or understand my business. And that should concern me. Yeah, we were discussing earlier on about the mix of, we were discussing a freight forward or a large global logistics provider. And you mentioned that at one point in time that they had 70% transactional business and 30% strategic business. And that now they're trying to switch that over so that 70% of their business is strategic versus transactional. In the end, that's how you're going to better serve your customer, right? If you get their business and if you care about it and if you care about building that relationship, that's when you know you're valued. Yeah, you know, I say it all the time. Repeat business is more telling than new business to me. So if yeah. you say, yeah, we're always bringing on new customers, but we really, really don't like to lose existing ones. We serve the heck out of them so we don't lose them. <laughs> so after this customer onboarding, what's the next step? So the next step typically begins when you're going to have a shipment that's being imported into the U.S. And at that point in time, you have to go through a documentation process. So the documentation process basically involves collecting the documents and information that are needed to file your customs entry, actually with customs, but also collecting the information you might need to file with what are called the PGAs. So the PGAs are partner government agencies. They include the likes of the FDA, the USDA, Department of Transportation, the alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and any number of agencies that regulate the flow of goods into and out of the country. So how do they get involved? So I'm assuming FDA has something to do with the food and drugs, right? So let's just say I'm bringing in food. How does my customs explain how they're involved with the custom process? So when you make a filing, let's just say that you're importing hand sanitizer. We had a customer who was trying to import hand sanitizer. and we Everybody has customers like that right now. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're sort of a big thing. Because hand sanitizer is regulated by the FDA for a couple of reasons. A, physically goes on your body. And then you're also making a claim that the hand sanitizer will kill germs. And because you're, you're making a, a medical claim, kills germs, and it physically touches your body, the FDA gets involved with it. FDA is going to want to see... The hand sanitizer has to have, I believe, 70% minimum alcohol content. And if it has below that in alcohol content, it's not going to be deemed to be a disinfectant. So when you say, send us the information, you're going to send us a commercial invoice, you're going to send us a bill of lading, packing lists, and those kinds of items. We're going to take some of that information and we're going to make a filing with the FDA that says we're importing our customers importing hand sanitizer. Here's the documentation that shows that the hand sanitizer does have the minimum required amount of alcohol in it, and therefore it's compliant and can be imported as hand sanitizer. We had one instance in which somebody was trying to import something which was labeled as hand sanitizer and had 50% alcohol in it. And the FDA came back and said, you can't label this hand sanitizer because it doesn't have the required amount of alcohol in it. It's therefore, it literally can't be imported. Right. And I think you also mentioned to me when we were prepping for this is that some things like their claims, if the claim hasn't been validated by the FDA, if you're making health claims like, hey, this is a you know miracle weight loss drug, they have to approve of that, right? You just can't start bringing stuff in that wouldn't normally be legal here. Yeah, so that's the right to make a claim that a product has a medical or health benefit is regulated by the FDA. Anytime you're making any kind of, if you look on, for example, uh, supplements and vitamins, they can make loose claims like we think it promotes heart health, but they can't say that it will make you healthier. Right. So explain to me like some of the other, so we understand how the FDA gets involved. What are some of the other agencies that, how do they get involved? So you can have fish and wildlife, for example, will regulate uh, import of foods. Sometimes if there's animal products, they can get involved. There's another act we frequently have to comply with called the Lacey Act. Lacey Act relates to the importation of wood. So in starting in the 1980s, when people became very, very concerned about deforestation and also about the poaching or illegal harvesting of rare woods and the destruction on the forests, legislation was put in place that tried to regulate the flow of illegal goods coming into the U.S. So this is goods that could be animal-based, like ivory, but most commonly typically deals with wood. So let's just say you're importing a you're importing a sofa that has wood on the inside, and it's, a, it's like most couches typically will involve some kind of wood. Right. You're importing that in. If it has wood on it, you have to provide a document that shows where the wood came from, where it was harvested, and what the species of wood is. And sometimes... 
there will be inspections. People, the fish and wildlife will actually take a look at this and say, you know, you said that this was oak, but this looks like that. This looks like a breed of oak that you're not allowed to import because it's in Okay. So you guys guide them through the process and you do these filings on behalf of your customers? Yep. The business of customs brokerage is basically collecting documents, extracting the information that is relevant to that particular kind of entry process, submitting it into customs, and then making sure that the releases are obtained. And in the event that there's any further documentation needed, working with the customer to provide that documentation and secure customs clearance on behalf of the importer. So after we've done this, what we'll call the customer onboarding, and then this is next is kind of this, I guess you call that in, you know, ready to import or ready to export. And then what's the next step? So there's a couple, the documentation phase, once you've collected the information, okay. you have to file something called an ISF if you're coming in by ocean. ISF stands for Importer Security Filing. And it's essentially, it used to be called 10 plus 2 in the industry because you were collecting 10 plus 2 pieces of information. Don't ask me why they didn't just call it 12. <laughs> okay. 10 plus 2. And the 10 plus 2, the, the ISF basically has information about who the seller was, who the buyer is, the EIN or social security number or importer of record number, the importer as who the name of the consignee is, who the name of the manufacturer is, where it was stuffed into a container or consolidated, and a brief description, the first six digits of the harmonized tariff code, and the country of origin and any relevant bill of lading numbers. You have to provide that to customs 24 hours before a container is put on board a ship. In theory, there is a $5,000 fine if you fail to provide that information in a timely manner. Up until now, customs has been letting it slide most often, unless you're really, unless you're an egregious violator. They've been pretty nice about giving people time to remedy that. That is likely to change as the law has been in place for quite a while now, and they seem to want people to be very compliant with this. Well, I would also say, you know, that's, uh, would think a security issue. And, um, you know, as we have better technology, we have, we notice these things more readily. Yeah, absolutely. So we have customer onboarding, and then you call the next stage documentation phase. What's the next step? So once you've filed your ISF, you're then going to be providing a commercial invoice to your customs broker. And from the commercial invoice, the broker is going to look, they're going to identify the commodity and classify it more specifically. So for the ISF filing, you need to have six digits down. With the commercial invoice, you're going to end up with, with the full 10. So they're going to specifically classify things. They're going to make sure the description of the product is accurate. Right? Sometimes you'll see people try and import goods and they'll just say machine parts and it'll hit customs and customs will say, well, we need to know, are those like nuclear centrifuge machine parts or are those like drills for like a, for a machine tool? Right. We don't know the difference, right? So you might find out also that one is covered, maybe it's one duty required, another might be a much higher or much lower duty, correct? Yeah, so there's... Your customs broker is, if you've got a good relationship with them and you've got good systems in place, before they import something, because most businesses import things regularly, right? You, you're not just going to do, most businesses don't want to do a one-time only kind of a deal. So they're going to do a more common, more frequent yeah, routine business. So in that case, you've identified, with, the importer works with the customs broker to identify what the correct filing code is. And you keep that in a, in essentially in, in a product database and when we see a shipment coming in for electrified metal bed frames, for example, we know what those fit in. And usually there is, as far as customs is concerned, there is only one correct classification for goods. And unless you go to customs and get a specific exemption for goods coming in because you say they might be materially different, you're going to have one classification. And the duty rate that applies is the duty rate that applies. So these are all related to, and this, I don't want to get in great detail on this, but when there's negotiations between countries, they come up with these tariffs, right? And they'll say, this is what, we're going to put a tariff on this or that. They have tariffs for all of the goods that we're shipping in and out. And then there's duties associated. The duties defined within those tariffs? Yes, there are agreements between countries that define tariffs. That's when there is an agreement. Sometimes I'm pretty certain that the Chinese did not agree on the 301 tariffs or the recent, right, the right, right, right. some people call them the Trump tariffs. I'm pretty sure the Chinese did not agree to that. So right. those were applied unilaterally. So you have to go back and, and take a look in, in your local country's customs documentation to learn what those tariffs are. Right. But that's one of the things you guys get into is, you know, determining what tariffs govern a, a certain product and then applying the proper duty. Yeah. So we do that. And we also, 
We've helped a couple of customers even go beyond that. As sometimes you'll see, we had one customer was coming in and they wanted to bring in automobile accessories. And they had a supplier in China, a supplier in Vietnam, and a supplier in Mexico. And the supplier in China had the high tariffs applied. The supplier in Vietnam was more expensive than the supplier in China, but the tariffs were obviously going to be lower. And then the Mexican supplier, because they could come in under the Previously, they would have been eligible to come in under NAFTA, but in this case, the new USMCA trade agreement was operated. So USMCA is U.S. US, Mexico, Canada, Canada, and that's kind of what you would call NAFTA (laughs) 2.0. So you'll have people will come in. It's not only about classifying the goods, but also, and this sort of goes beyond what most customs brokers are going to do because it sort of falls within trade and procurement consulting, but we helped these guys figure out that even though the Chinese supplier was the cheapest, once you added in the tariffs, it was actually fairly expensive. Then the supplier in Mexico seemed a little bit cheaper than the supplier in Vietnam, in part due to the transportation costs. But we ultimately assumed that there was going to be no duty on it applying in. But because of the new rules with USMCA, which are pretty complex, and the cost of the labor that went into fashioning the goods in Mexico, it wasn't USMCA eligible. So even though it appeared at first that the, the, the Mexican supplier was the cheapest. It ended up being that the Vietnamese supplier was the cheapest, even though they're a little bit more expensive than China, more expensive than Mexico. Because there's a free trade agreement in place, they ended up being the cheapest, even having to ship these fairly goods all the way over to Asia. Right. I did that when I was still in automotive, when I was in engineering working with purchasing. A lot of times we'd have these matrix and it'd be like, here's how much the part cost is. Here's how much the transportation cost. And of course, as you just mentioned the duties and it's complicated because <laughs> I remember we'd always be looking at China. We'd always be looking at Mexico. We'd always be looking here at the U.S. because I'm in the U.S. And what's always hard to measure in this, Christopher, is that hassle factor. So you go, you know what? It's a little more expensive to be here in the U.S., but you know what? They're down the street or there's two states over. I can deal with that. They're in my time zone, for God's sakes. Mexico is a little easier than China, obviously. Yeah, so you're always kind of doing that mental gymnastics and the math saying what works. And I've often felt like the intangibles, like time zone, communication, it's hard to put a number on it. Yeah, it is. It really is. And it seems like sort of the global forwarding industry and, and the customs industry always have to deal with people in different time zones. Often you will have imperfect language skills. I can guarantee you that I have my Chinese, my Mandarin is non-existent. And sometimes a lot of the factories that we deal with in China, they'll have limited oh, yeah. knowledge. And it can get to be really, really tricky. I'll tell you, I used to work a lot within China, and when I would see the guys I worked with, and I, you know, they could see me face to face, we had no communication issues. But if I was to call them on the phone, or they were to call me, if they called me, there's a good chance I wouldn't know who I was talking to. And mm-hmm. God bless them, they speak English. I don't speak Mandarin, but you know, the accents and not being able to have that in person—that's hard. So I know what you mean. And what is it? What's like the? I've often heard people say that ninety percent of communication is nonverbal. So maybe you know when you get in front of the guy and he sees you smile or shake your head or look unhappy, he's like, "All right, I get it. There's something wrong, and I recognize you, so I know who you are." Right. <laughs> so, game back to it. First step is onboarding. Second is this documentation. What do you call that third step? So the third step would be actually filing the entry. Okay. This is where your customs broker is going to take the information. Make sure that it makes sense. Make sure uh, the information appears correct. Sometimes you'll have things that are misclassified or an item's description changes. You know, it goes from being made out of uh, steel to being made out of aluminum, for example. They're just going to make sure that everything looks right. Then they're going to file it with custom systems. And then they're going to wait until there's some kind of response back from customs. And most of the time, about 95% of the time, the response is back is that your goods have been cleared. U.S. Customs is very efficient. The systems that they have in place are very robust. And things happen quickly and predictably in the U.S., more so than in most other countries. So you're going to get that disposition back from customs. So if I'm bringing it in from China... U.S. custom clears it. If I'm shipping it something from here to China, Chinese customs clears it? So there's an export and import side to things. If you're bringing in something from China, Chinese customs has given it an export license, saying you're allowed to export it. Yep. If you're, let's think about something that's sort of been a hot topic of late. There's a lot of talk about the U.S. government forbidding the export of military-sensitive technology to China. So 
any single time you're going to export, if you're going to be exporting computer chips off to China, you're going to need to go to the government and say, these chips are allowable for export because they're deemed non-military technology. And you've got to make an export declaration on a system called uh, the AES, which then gives you an export license so you can export the goods. When those goods then arrive in China, the Chinese government is going to give it an import license or a customs clearance. So you've got this dual-sided aspect right. to it. And you know, it, while we're talking about this, is I know um, from some of my friends and customers, I've heard this problem. A lot of things that are used in industrial applications can be also used by terrorist organizations. So sometimes when you have a sale to a location, customs, or I don't know, maybe it's Border Patrol, gets involved and says, no, you're not shipping that to that country, even though it might seem like it's not military. Speak to that. Yeah, there's a lot of things that have dual purposes. And there are some very, very smart people who are tasked with trying to figure out what they don't actually tell us what systems they have in place, because obviously they want to maintain that confidential so that it can't be gamed. But there's some people who spend a lot of time looking at things that have dual use purposes. And even like just on in a more sort of routine everyday kind of instance, you might remember in early on, I guess in mid 2020, it was hard. The Chinese government was not allowing people to export things like masks and hospital gowns. And that their determination was, is that they wanted those goods to stay in the country for them to use for their own internal needs. So they yep. didn't grant those export licenses. And for a while, it was tricky. I ran into that many years ago, shipping into an Asian country. We were making cars over there. And Airbags actually have an explosive device in them. That's how they can blow up so quickly. And uh, <laughs> obviously, that raises some attention. So we had to go through kind of extra extra documentation, extra steps, extra everything to get those <laughs> into that country. Yeah, yeah. It's a common thing, you know, explaining. Because that also, whenever you're dealing with anything that has an explosive, it's deemed a hazardous material. And anything that can go boom. Is yeah, you can blow up a boat. That's a ship, yeah. Look what happened in Beirut this past year when they had all that fertilizer that they've yeah. been storing and, and they, you know, they, they didn't pay too much attention to it. You know, somehow it didn't get properly labeled. Nobody was saying, Oh, we, we really can't have this much ammonium nitrate sitting around. That stuff blows up. And sure enough, it did. So there's a legitimate reason right. for governments that are tasked with maintaining the safety of the citizenry to make sure that they have visibility and some say in how things are handled. Right. So customer onboarding, number one, number two, that documentation stage, number three, this filing. And then number four, I think the step is you cleared customs. Right. So you're going to get 95% of the time, you're going to get a disposition back from customs or a message back from customs, which is going to say your goods have been cleared and they're authorized for release. At that point in time, you have to issue, your broker is going to issue a delivery order, which is going to have a, a typically a truck come and pick things up from the port and take them out along with that customs release, which allows them to, to take it off the property. Sometimes though, sometimes you're going to have an examination. And if you have an examination, most of the time they're done by x-ray, unless there are things that would be damaged via x-ray. Your customs broker then needs to arrange to have that container move to a place where it can be inspected. And you want to pay a lot of attention to this as we've seen recently a couple of situations in which right before a holiday weekend, Friday afternoon, when somebody's already thinking about their weekend, they get a notice that there's been a, an inspection that needs to occur and that they're responsible for moving that container into an inspection area. They don't really think about it. They don't get around to it until they're back from the holiday weekend on Tuesday. Maybe the email's all the way down at the bottom. They've gotten 300 emails in between then. So now it's, you know, afternoon by the time they realize something needs to be done. And then they've got to get that container moved over. That might take a little while to arrange, but it ends up being overnight. So the container doesn't get inspected for two, three days later. But because of the long weekend that went over, you might have gone three, four, five days past your last free day, and all of a sudden you're hit with this huge demurrage bill. And sometimes if they only inspect one container, they're not going to release the entire shipment. So if you've got five containers sitting on one bill of lading and on one customs clearance, and they only want to inspect one container, the whole shipment's held. So you'll have people... You're so about is, that, with, is that that point it's already off of the ship? or yeah, the, already off the ship. So when something gets moved into a port, you've got a, a limited amount of time to remove that container from the port, right? Because the port's in the business of moving things in and out. They're not in the long-term storage business. And most of them will, you'll get a couple of free days. And then after that, they pay, you pay something called demurrage, which is essentially a, a penalty because they're not really in the storage business. It's like detention, right? <laughs> it's 
Well, in this case, you've got to get the demurrage comes from the French word of get it out of my walls, basically. <laughs> now, at that point, who are you paying the demurrage fees to? Is that to, to uh, the port? The, okay, to the port. And are ports considered private entities or are they usually owned by the government? So there's a mix depending on where you go in the world. For example, one of the largest, Dubai World, is a really, really big private port operator, but they sort of belong to the government. So is that a government entity or a private entity? Hard to say. Some ports are publicly owned but privately managed. So the port of uh, Piraeus in Athens, Greece, used to be managed by a local Greek entity, which was tied to the government. And then they allowed a Chinese company to take over management of that port. And shockingly, things have all of a sudden started moving through the Greek ports much more quickly. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Nice. Nice. Yeah, they have, but it was it was a pretty big scandal at the time because people were like, they're like, how can we let a Chinese company manage our ports? They're not going to do a good job. They don't care. And all of a sudden, people have discovered that now Piraeus is a port at which people actually transship things because things work pretty well. We are pretty efficient in this business. So yeah. we've talked about this process of clearing customs. Talk about some of the problems you see. I mean, you were attracted to this industry because you saw opportunities, uh, which are problems, right? What problems did you see? that made you want to get into this business and maybe address some of those problems? So the number one problem that we saw is that there was very, very little integration of customs processes into digital processes that operate within the rest of the supply chain, right? If every day you look around and there's somebody coming up with a new digital tool, a new booking platform that's helping people sort of digitalize the purchase management and monitoring of your logistics processes. You've got a, a company in Germany called Cargo One that just raised $43 million to automate sort of a air cargo booking. You've got the Twilios of the world. You've got a company in France called Bico that we also recently encountered that allows you to do ocean freight booking so that you're essentially, you're duplicating the experience of kayak, but you're duplicating that experience for all of a sudden for, for logistics. And those businesses are coming online, but in the custom space, there wasn't anybody, there wasn't anything that was equivalent to the simple digital tools that you had. So we foresee one of the big problems being that as supply chains become more digital, customs tends to be one of the last places that people have sort of innovated. Why? Well, nobody really had to, right? It wasn't like you'd say, hmm, yeah, I'm just going to skip on that customs today. I'm just going to import my goods without customs because I don't like them because the process. Right, right, right. And as we talk, I've had lately a lot of discussion about kind of creating a digital twin. So anything that happens in the physical world, it's also happening in the digital world. And what's cool about that digital twin is the idea that we can, actually the carrier direct people were just talking about, Shanna and Tony. And when you think about that, that's the opportunity to do some scenario planning. If I have a digital twin, I can always say, what if? You know, what if, and we're talking about the different scenarios, Vietnam or China or Mexico. Now I can, if I can get that whole thing digitized, I can start doing some scenario planning. Well, if I don't have this end <laughs> digitized, if it's just a black hole where you go, yeah, we mapped everything into customs. Well, I might have a huge glitch that I don't see, right? I can't do my scenario planning because I can't see all the potential disruptions. Yeah, precisely. It's exactly that. There's no, you ultimately need to have everything connected and you need to understand what's going on. And this lack of connection in digital systems meant that ultimately customs was this black hole, right? Right. It was sort of like you're sitting there waiting, like an expectant father wondering, you know, is the kid going to be born okay? I don't know until, you know, I literally, I don't know until the doctor comes out and tells me kind of a thing. And, you know, I've been through this on the other side as a customer, and sometimes the freight forwarders handling the customs, but there's always just this waiting. And the best you can get is you call and say, hey, can you give me an update? And they'll go, yeah, everything seems to be okay. I'll send you an email tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of these times, so often you're a freight forwarder, is if they have a customs broker in-house, um, they're probably, the person coordinating the transportation is probably not the same person doing the, the customs call. Right, right, right. So if they, they now have to go back and email, they've got to figure out, all right, who is the customs broker on this one? Okay, now let me go back and email that person. And then they've got to look into their email. Again, you know, it could be 5 p.m. They could have just walked out the door and they might not get back till tomorrow. Then tomorrow morning, the customs broker comes back in, takes a look at the system and says, oh, yeah, well, you know, I haven't heard anything back from customs, but let me dig through my emails and find out what the last message I got was. And that could take them 10 to 15 minutes just to find the status or go query into custom systems. So you're trying to get that so it's kind of on par with what we're used to on domestic transportation. Yeah, it's that there's it's time for 
importers and freight forwarders to have access to the same quality of information with the same ease of use as consumers have had in other parts of their life. Can you imagine if you went on to, I don't know, if you went on to your Amazon platform and they could say, well, we think everything's okay, but we'll let you know in about a week or two. Right. That is so true. And we this comes up a lot on this podcast is that consumer technology that we're so used to and so we so love the instant, right? If I want a freight quote for my insurance, my car insurance, I just get it. And it's not like I'll get back to you tomorrow. I get it online. And want an airline ticket, I get it right now, right? They either have it or they don't. And here's the price. So the idea that you have to wait a day or I'll call you back feels so old fashioned, right? So speak to another problem. So the, very much, I agree, 100% they connected is a problem. And that's one you're trying to fix. What's another problem you see in the space? So one of the other problems is in opaque pricing. I don't know about you, but I like knowing what I'm going to pay for the services, and I like knowing exactly what I'm paying for. We looked at the invoices that a lot of our customers get from other customs brokers, and we're seeing crazy stuff. We're seeing courier fees. Remember back from the day when you had to send paper documents around? Right. (laughs) You don't send documents around. Some people do it for personal moves and for importing personal automobiles, but those are really, really rare cases, and you can now do those electronically too. Why are you hitting up your customer with a $35 fee to courier documents across the port? You don't do that. Yeah, and you think about it, Freight Waves, kind of one of the (laughs) leaders of our industry, they had a big conference called Transparency, not opaqueness, Transparency. (laughs) Absolutely. So there's, and the other thing is people are always tacking on little charges and little bills. I don't know, I I remember. You can put almost anything in that. that When when you see that long list of things and go, hey, what's, what is this? And there's always, oh, the government requires us to do this and it's $30. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who am I to say no? I, I don't know. <laughs> the government doesn't charge anything for you doing filings, right? There's private companies that will charge you fees, but the government doesn't. That $30 fee is not coming from the government. Right, but there's always a reason, and you really don't, this is my own experience, really don't even know what to say. You know, if I said, oh, yeah, that's the washing machine fee. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, you're gonna try, we saw one guy, one customer, we did an analysis of his invoices for him, and he had something called an ABI fee. ABI stands for Automated Broker Interface. This was a $15 fee to use a technology that didn't used to be mandatory, but has been mandatory for quite a while now. And they were charging him to do something. The only way to do a customs entry is using the ABI system. There is no other way. Right? So, why are you He's the guy who could end up paying the washing machine fee like yeah. me. <laughs> so that just, I don't know. I remember having an experience walking in and getting one of those cell phone plans. And the phone company says, you know, they put like fifty nine ninety nine unlimited service. And I walk in and then I'm not paying too much attention, my bad. But I get my first bill. It's $104.69. I remember it pretty exactly. And I'm like, about fifty nine. <laughs> What's up with this? I bought a $59 phone. I switched from the other phone service to this one because I thought it was going to be less expensive. So we see lack of transparency in billing and also a lack of accountability for what's going on being a big issue. Yeah, that kind of thing. And I hate anything where I don't, where my invoice doesn't match my quote. And I like it when people say, here's what you're, fee-. and we're all getting there. I mean, you see it all over the place. People don't like fake quotes. That 59 and turning into 104, we hate that. And I think with Yelp reviews and all the stuff we have on the internet to help us communicate who's doing good and who's doing bad, we're doing away with some of those bad business practices. Yeah, the transparency is important. Having a relationship of trust, knowing that your service provider is not going to try and like play funny games to like up their profitability and then just like, oh, that's just the way it is, buddy. Just got sorry about that. Yeah, that's just how it is. That kind of thing is that we really we want to bring transparency, certitude, and trust. We want people to trust that we're not trying to pull a fast one on them over in the billing. Because a lack of trust right. amongst business partners, basically, it consumes energy. It makes people have to check up more on what you're doing. And it impedes their ability to rely on what you're saying is always being the truth and in their best interest. Right. So what's another issue you see besides this, the not being connected, and we talked about that, and this other thing, which is the opaqueness or lack of transparency? So 
the lack of accountability of service providers. So customs brokers are all licensed individuals, and the bar for licensing is quite high. Yet some organizations deliver better service than others for all the reasons that any company might deliver better service than, than another company, right? They could have management issues. They could have in-house technology issues. They, they, their heating could go out in the middle of winter and everybody has to go home and they've got no work from home kind of protocol in place or COVID kicks up and uh, offices get closed. We see that in part because it's perceived to be a regulated requirement and because there is very, very little transparency into how the process works. If your forwarder comes back and says, oh yeah, sorry, the people over at Custom, they're sort of stuck on this. How do you really know? Are they right. stuck on it because the guy went out on a lunch break and the email he was composing, he forgot to finish and then it was 35 windows down and then he got busy and things got delayed by three days? Or is he stuck on it because there's actually a problem over with customs or a problem with the documentation? A lot of companies, right. we'd all like the people we do business with to just be honest and say, listen, my bad, I forgot to take care of this, I'll make sure it's right and I make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, these are all very, these points that you bring up are all very connected. This idea of transparency and being connected, it drives accountability. You know, when I say, when I start to say, hey, this is going to take 10 days and it's going to cost this much, I tell you that up front, that's part of being accountable. And then if it's more money or more days, then I get an answer to that. So I like where this is going. So the way we're building our system, the way we look at it, we want our customer, when we get information back from customs, the importer and the forwarder have access to that very, very same information. They don't need to call us. They don't need to wait for us. We'll even ping you with alerts from our system when you get information back from customs, when there's clearances, when there's holds, when whatever is placed. You should be able to understand exactly what's going on with your merchandise because it's it's right. your stuff, right. right? Yeah, before we get into a little bit, I want to l- learn more about Zeus, but first, summarize this topic for us. All right, so the process of importing goods basically comes with being set up, and if you're using a customs broker, because you can do this on your own if you want. If you're using, I don't recommend it. <laughs> it's a tricky process. I mean, you can file your taxes on your own, too, and... Some people right. actually do, but most people would rather have somebody who knows their way around the IRS forms and who understands accounting and who understands the regulations handle it for them. Very, very similar situation. But if you're going to hire somebody to clear customs for you, you've got to sign that POA that it allows them to do the work on your behalf. Then when you have a shipment that comes in, you've got to provide them with a commercial invoice, packing list, bill of lading, and any additional documentation that may be needed for the, the PGAs, for you know your FDA, your DOT, your USDA. They then file all this information with customs and they receive releases eventually from customs and as well as from the, the FDA, USDA, etc. Once the goods are released, you're allowed to remove the goods from the port and take them into your physical possession. So once the goods are released, typically the customs broker will issue a delivery order to the truck driver that the importer or freight forwarder has selected to do the job and you go by on your merry way. If the process breaks down, if they demand uh, additional information, if they want to inspect your documents, then your customs broker might have uh, additional documents to request of you. And a good customs broker will know what customs want to see. They'll know how to get the goods. They'll know what kind of information needs to be given to customs or needs to be given to the FDA or the ATF or whatever agency is regulating it, such that you can get your goods out quickly. About 5% of all customs clearances need additional documentation. Oh, good to know. Good to know. So, Good stuff. So please tell us a little bit more about, you touched a little bit on what Zeus is doing, but tell us more. And it's not Zeus Logistics, it's Zeus Logics. So tell us a little bit more what's going on over at Zeus. So our primary customers are importers and freight forwarders. And what we've done is we built a system, a platform that allows you to manage your customs, either as an importer or as a forwarder working on behalf of an importer, in such a way that you can you upload documents onto a platform or you have people who are generating those documents upload them rather than having to have you run around, chase down emails, make sure the right person got the right email, that they have the correct yeah, for God's sake, I know people are still using fax machines for this end of the business. Yeah, we occasionally get requests for faxes. And these days we're like, just take a picture of the document, email it to us. You'd be amazed what we've seen. We've seen stuff come back. We've gotten pictures of documents that were illegible that had what looked to be ketchup on them. <laughs> so, it's funny stuff. 
And we're hoping it was ketchup. <laughs> right, right. So we're, we've basically been streamlining the information collection process so that importers and forwarders don't have to spend as much time sending emails back and forth because it takes time. And it's just a hassle to deal with. And then we built a portal whereby the importer or the forwarder can go in and check and see what the status is of things, see what communications have occurred back with customs, see which documents were uploaded and make sure that they're the correct versions. They, they can see it you know, a time and date stamp. So your importer might know, for example, oh, we had to split that purchase order. So even though we provided you this documentation three weeks ago, now that it's actually going to be loaded on the ship, that document is superseded and you need to get a new one before we've got problems. You know, Christopher, when we were talking about this offline, it just kept hitting me that this is what we're used to with our regular domestic shipments, right? We're used to having phones with information on our phones. We're used to having just kind of instant access to our information. And then when you start bringing it into the customs process or in the freight forwarding process, uh, unless you're using Flexport, <laughs> well, the Flexport and some others like them, the international stuff just seems like it, it's bogged down. And for reasons we already discussed, it's harder. <laughs> but it is tricky just because you've got, again, all these systems. A domestic shipments usually going to occur with like one or two different companies being involved. By the time you're dealing with like a global freight movement, you've got 14, 15, 16 different right. people involved in the process. That's a lot of people in a lot of different countries, a lot of different languages, and a lot of different systems, like you said. Right, right. So well, I already asked you who you serve. So how do people reach out and talk to you? So they can either go to our website, we've got a sign-up form, or they can just email me. My email is cw at zeus, Z-E-U-S, logics, L-O-G-I-C-S, dot com. Yep. We love speaking to people about their business. We love learning about customers' wants and needs. And so we like to speak with people. I've even been speaking lately with importers who said, you're too small for us to do business with right now, (laughs) but they just want to talk about the process. So we've met all kinds of people that way. Yep. So what I'll do... Christopher, is I'll put a link to your website and I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile so people can reach out and talk to you if they are interested in learning more. That'd be great. And I really do appreciate you walking us through this. Again, this is an area that I always feel like there is a lot of opaqueness. I don't understand it fully. And even going through the process a number of times, you know, back and forth to China or Mexico or Canada, it's still hard to kind of understand how this process works. Well, Joe, you know, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. And I hope we can sort of demystify that whole process. Yes, that sounds like you are. So thank you very much to Christopher and thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Till next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 